PV Mart stores are rooted in the communities we serve, and we are connected to the land in the same way our customers are. Whether you're an urban farmer, backyard chicken aficionado, traditional rancher, or anything in between, we offer just the right mix of homesteading, outdoor adventure, DIY, yard and garden, outdoor and workwear, husbandry, livestock, and pet supplies. Whether you're a dabbler or all in, we're here to help and strive to offer a range of products that will meet the unique needs of our customers. PV Mart will always be there with the tools, equipment, indoor or outdoor wares, seed or feed, for everyday work, fun, or connecting to the land on a whole new level. For more information, go to pvmart.com. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. Ready or not, we'll soon be traipsing back outside to our yards for another season of growing. Me, I have a new yard this year, and we're planning to break ground and see what this dirt's going to grow for us. You know, as far back as ancient Egypt, people understood the healing benefits of gardens. It improves mind and body, circulation, respiratory health. It can lower your blood pressure and reduce stress. Gardening is good for you. And of course, you can't beat the taste of homegrown tomatoes. As gardeners, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to grow, where we're going to grow it, and how we're going to make our garden— but the often forgotten element of hobbyists and newbies is one of the most important aspects of a successful garden. The soil. It only makes sense. Depending on where you live in the world, the earth you're planting in can have very different properties, resulting in a very different success rate for your plants and crops. Do you have silty, sandy, or clay-abundant soil? Is it too rocky? Does it get too much sun? Is there such a thing? I wanted to know more, so I called up our friend and previous guest on Connected to the Land, Ashley Essekin. As an agronomist, YouTuber, and founder of the Gardening in Canada website, she was the perfect person to dig into this topic with. We chatted soil health, prime gardening locations, and how alien worms are taking over the continent. Ashley, welcome back to Connected to the Land. Hi, how are you? I'm doing so great, and it's great to have you back on the podcast. Um, the last time we chatted, we had a great chat about soil and everything, and I learned quite a lot. And it's great to have you back now, especially as people are sort of considering the next phase of what's going to happen with their gardens. Um, I'm anxious and in digging into this with you because I have a new property now. I'm, I, I moved since the last time we talked, so... I'll be starting a new garden here. So I'm going to get your your input on what I should be looking for and, you know, the places around my yard that I should be considering and all that. Um, but, you know, I want to I want to talk a little bit. I want to start off talking about connecting to the land and that connection. Um, I've heard you describe the young Ashley working with her grandmother in her garden and young Ashley's side of the garden. It was essentially just a mud pit due to, quote unquote, too much love. <laughs> 
But that love was there for you at an early age, wasn't it, for gardening? Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. Ever since I can remember, I've been I've been gardening with my grandma, yeah. So how did that start for you? Um, my grandma actually was an, a very avid gardener. I don't know if that was just how she was born and raised, but everything got started from seeds. So that would include mm-hmm. her decorative flowers all the way to her tomatoes. So her basement, her sunroom, every corner of the house was just piled up with seedlings and plants. And so there was lots of transplanting going on and it was just, you know, wall to ceiling plants everywhere. She also used to give away um, and sell plants to neighbors and sisters and um, that sort of thing. Oh, okay. So there was excess. Oh, wow. <laughs> she also okay. had like her greenhouse and everything. So um, it started there, but I've always just had like an inherent love of nature. Mm. So it just really naturally fit for me because when I look at my brother, my sister, my cousins, all of which were babysit by my grandma, they didn't necessarily garden. It was just me that was making mm. mud pies for the most part. So it may be just a personality trait. I'm not sure, but yeah, I just, I love it so, so much. Oh, uh, well, that's so amazing. I wonder if that's something that that can be cultivated because I know there are a lot of people out there who probably grew up a little more like you know, your siblings were like, yeah, I just didn't, it never, it never really clicked at a young age. You're so lucky to have had that genetically built into you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't watch like a lot of TV and stuff. Like I'm mm. an early nineties baby. So TV shows and video games weren't really my thing where mm. my brother and sister maybe were a little bit later. So parenting back then was maybe a bit more hands-on. Plus I'm a redhead. So I'm a bit of a stinker. Okay. All right. <laughs> I uh, constantly all right. have to be watched. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you own that one. And for those listening, uh, there actually did exist video games and television before the 1990s, in case anyone thought maybe that that uh, <laughs> was what we're getting at. Atari. Yeah, Atari. <laughs> yeah. That Turbo Graphics, Nintendo. It was all around back then. Um, all right. That's, we're getting off topic here. Um, <laughs> You know, I love also you have a philosophy about the importance of having a garden beyond just the production of food. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that because that's something that is becoming more and more prevalent. People are starting to understand the actual mental and physical attributes and and, and benefits of having a garden. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, every time, it's so funny, when spring comes around, I, my mental health gets better. I can wake up earlier in the mornings. Mm. I go to bed on time. Um, and I suddenly start losing tons of weight. (laughs) So, I mean, there's healthier eating, all that sort of stuff. So it really does get you in the garden, get you moving. And then in the winter time, even when you're just trying to learn about gardening and stuff like that, it keeps your mind active because you're researching, you're reading, you're writing, um, and it just keeps your brain active, your body active, everything. So it is a huge proponent of like my health, just yeah. um, in all aspects. So I think it's really quite important. Um, and we live in a world where a lot of the hobbies out there are online hobbies. Yeah. Um, and this is a way to be able to unplug and you don't, you don't really, you don't need anything electronic to do this. So it's really, really nice in that respect. Yeah. 
I mean, when we think about gardening, I think folks who, who don't have a lot of experience with it, I don't think there'll be many of those listening to this podcast, but mm-hmm. um, you, you might think of it as being sort of a sedentary activity, but it's, it's actually not. There's quite a lot of movement, like you're pushing, you're pulling, you're digging, you're twisting, you're doing all these things that actually, these little micro movements that we, you know, will watch yoga videos to do kind of exactly the same thing that you are just doing by nature of tending to your garden that uh, that yeah. add to the physical, you know, attributes to having one. And I just look at like my grandparents and stuff and uh, in particular, my grandmas and my grandma's sisters and that sort of thing. And everyone who's garden from start to finish, they tend to live not only healthier lives, mm. um, but longer lives too. Like I look at my grandma, mm. she's 84 and I'm like, how? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. And I, Sometimes she just, she doesn't work out. She doesn't, you know, eat particularly healthy, but she's been active her whole life because she's gardened her whole life. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 There's so much more to it than we actually understand. But anyway, I love, I love that that's something that you're all about. And uh, I think a lot of people listening to this can, can appreciate that. Um, you know, the last time we chatted, I asked you this kind of tongue-in-cheek question. I'm going to ask it again because I think it's actually kind of important, especially when we're thinking about the philosophy of soil health, which is sort of a big topic that I want to talk to you about today. Um, what What is the difference between dirt and soil? <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. So I guess dirt is more so terminology of a massive land that isn't necessarily being cared for in any way. So when I think of dirt, I think of maybe a property that doesn't have any plants on it Mm -hmm. and is pretty dusty looking and maybe doesn't have much color to it, where soil would have different profiles, um, microbial activity. There's a lot of chemistry. There's a lot of physics going on. Um, But it's important to remember, too, that not all soil is necessarily the best soil to garden in. Mm, So there is some changes we can make as gardeners to make it a little bit more arable for us. So, uh, Okay, great. Well, let's, let's get into some of those changes, but I mean, but I love also what you're, what you're, what you're saying is that good, healthy soil for the earth is not necessarily the right soil for your garden, depending on what you're growing. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So like in Canada in particular, uh, we have like a very changing landscape soil wise, mostly because of what the glaciers had done to our, our property. So the glaciers, when they kind of, uh, moved and retreated, they left salt deposits in odd places. They Mm. left lakes in some cases, they left rivers, um, and they just really tore things up. So we have a relatively uneven landscape. So everyone's garden can be a little bit different, even if we compare yeah. like a neighbor here from a neighbor, you know, five doors down type thing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, are we trying to then sort of create this one soil for Canada that would actually be good for gardening? Again, I think maybe you've answered this, that depending on what you're growing, different soils are require different nutrients in them, but... Um, is, is there some kind of magic soil that we're all trying to go for, be it the red dirt on PEI or the farmland in, in, in the prairies of Canada? Yeah. So the best kind of garden soil per se is something called a loam. 
And there's different types of loam. There's maybe clay loams, sandy loams. Um, but in general, you want the word loam in your soil. Mm. And all that's referring to is relatively equal parts of sand, silt, and clay. Right. And depending on where we are, we can end up with very, very heavy clay. So if we are located in an area that maybe was an old lake bed, like an old glacial lake or an inland ocean, um, we can end up with heavier clay particles. Hmm. If we end up in an area that was maybe the beaches of one of those great lakes um, or the beaches of an old inland sea or maybe a river that fed one of those lakes, we can end up with very, very sandy soil. Um, and conversely, there's lots of areas, particularly in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, uh, BC, where glaciers literally just tore the landscape up right, and right. left kind of like a mashed potato of everything <laughs> right, where okay. five feet from one spot can be a totally different soil type than the other. So yeah, it's kind of a, a mix up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, no matter where it is though, it's, um, it's, it's like an ecosystem though, right? I mean, it is, we, we've often thought of like the primordial soup of the ocean and how life has come from there. But now we're sort of, many of us, <laughs> many of us live on land. We live on land now. And uh, so this is sort of where a lot of what we, uh, what sustains us comes from, all the plants and things and things that, that, that we grow for food. So it's a living ecosystem that sustains plants and other living things. Um, it does this by regulating and purifying water, sustaining plant life, physical stability for root structures and that sort of thing. It's most, it's more than I think what most of us think about when we think about healthy soil though, isn't it? I, I just dumped all the information I researched into one sentence there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, for sure. It changes. I mean, if we look at um, just like ecosystems in Canada, we almost have this line drawn across Canada and we have the boreal forest and then we essentially have the grasslands and mm -hmm. it's pretty stark difference between the two. And it's funny because there's actually a change in the soil there too. So you're right when you say that different soil types will support different types of uh, biomass above ground. And that's true because we can see that when we look at ecosystems in and of themselves, mm -hmm. um, we have, different plants growing in them. So as a gardener, we don't necessarily get to choose the land mass we right. inherited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are some changes we can make um, to make it more suitable for being um, farmland, I guess you could say. And we have the benefit of having smaller scale farms, um, whereas farmers don't have that necessary luxury. Yeah, and so in a right. lot of cases with farmers, we end up with crops and stuff put on land that maybe necessarily should never have been tilled under or used as arable farmland. But right. as gardeners, we have the luxury of, you know, a tiny little plot. So, so what should we be doing to our tiny little plots of land in our yard? Should we be uh, figuring out what it is that we actually have first and then how to alter it from there? Yeah. So, um, preferably speaking, you would want to test your soil. And now this doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to send it to a lab or anything funny like that. Um, you could just do it on your own. And I think the last time we spoke about this, but you are essentially going to try to make ribbons. Um, and you can look up on just Google simple um, soil texture tests, and they'll come with a, up with a whole different uh, host of them. 
soil scientists use the ribbon method, um, but a really common gardener method is like the mason jar method, which is essentially putting soil suspended in water in a mason jar. Mm-hmm. You give it a little shake and it separates all, all the layers and you can tell um, how much of each uh, type you have. So that's one way to do it. Um, and that'll give you a good idea of what kind of soil you're dealing with mm. and then um, maybe what you need to add. What you're looking for in particular is the organic layer. So that's the layer that's going to be deposited at the top of the mason jar. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be all the sticks, the twigs, the fuzzy stuff. And you want at least 5% of your soil to have that. So if you had a jar and you had a grand total of 10 inches worth of soil deposited in there, you would want um, one inch of that entire profile to preferably be um, organic material only. If you have less than that, Hmm. that may be a sign that you need to add more. So that's something to think about. Um, And then the next thing you could do is actually testing your pH. Um, And this is, again, very simple. There's a red cabbage test. It's very easy to do. Like I have it in my planner, but you can Google it too. Mm -hmm. It's they're all the same. Um, and if you test your pH, you should always make sure it's between a um, 6.5, 6 um, on the lower end to 7, ideally speaking. And when you get there, um, you can then adjust accordingly. So there's really inexpensive stuff like gypsum and lime that you right. can use. And that gypsum and lime you can use to amend your soil either up or down, dependent on um, what your test results come back with. So those are all things to think about. And when you adjust your pH, it doesn't just help with the um, nutrient, necessarily the the nutrient profile and helping with nutrient absorption. It actually can cause um, things like flocculation, for example. And that's actually aggregation of your soil, which can help with root structure it can help with um, making sure your topsoil doesn't blow away it can also help with carbon sequestration so co2 Mm. sequestration as well um that's that's a lot of information uh thank you for all of that and as you mentioned a lot of this is available online um and this is all at uh um on your website is that correct yeah yeah you can find it on my website you can google it it'll show up kind of everywhere and anywhere so Gardening in Canada. And of course, you have lots of really valuable information on on YouTube as well. Uh, I urge everyone to go and check it out. Um, So I I mentioned before that I've got a new property now. Um, We just moved into this home a few months back, you know, eight months ago. So we're heading into our first time to be able to, to, to plant things outside. It's there, there isn't a garden here now. So we get to kind of pick where we're going to be putting it. Obviously, the first thing that I'm thinking of is, well, we want a place that has a lot of natural light, but is there anything else I should be considering when when choosing a plot on my property to to build specifically a vegetable garden? Yeah, for sure. So um, obviously, like you said, the light is important. Um, you also, depending on how open the area is, you may mm-hmm. want to consider things like um, just a shelter belt if you notice the wind is coming from a, a particular direction more often than not, right. um, fencing, that sort of thing. That's all stuff to think about. And then um, you can test your soil. So have you looked at your soil? Like, do you know in particular kind of 
what the prevailing uh, particle size is. Is it more so sandy or clay? I don't. I can't. I can't tell you that. I'm going to go ahead and say that it is not sandy. That it is probably uh, more, more clay. clay. Depending, just yeah. knowing what I know of the area. Yeah. So um, if you have more of a clay soil, I know there's a big movement for no dig or no till. Mm-hmm. That's right. But I usually um, recommend at least a one till method, hmm. only because um, with clay soils in particular they're usually devoid of organic material and they're usually pretty compacted. So yeah. us rototilling, it's not going to do that much harm only because there's not a lot of oxygen in that profile to begin with. Um, so a lot of the microbes are only located in maybe the top inch or two. Right. Um, they don't go very deep. And so we don't have a lot of um, microbe movement, I guess you could say below that. So generally speaking, um, the best method would be to add a compost layer, and this can be any form of compost as long as it's some sort of organic material. And uh, putting, you know, five six inches of that on top of the soil, right. and then rototilling that into the profile, and that's going to give you a really good head start. And if you can get anywhere from ten to twelve inches in depth, um, that's going to it's going to be a huge deal. And then going forward, you wouldn't have to rototill after that. You mm. could just leave it. Just make sure you're not walking across it and you're limiting traffic across the bed. Right. So if possible, um, you would rototill in maybe strips rather than just the whole land mass. So you do have areas to walk that are still slightly uh, right. compacted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, actually, in preparation for this interview, and, and she had a question about exactly that. And she was concerned about her worms. She said, like, I, I till my garden, but I just, every time I do, I'm churning up worms. And contrary to what we all learned in the playground, you can't necessarily cut a worm in half and get two worms. You will, <laughs> you will kill, you'll kill your worms by doing that. So she's concerned about tilling in her garden. Yeah, so that's that's fair. Um, you can obviously disrupt macro fauna, but technically, depending on where she's located in the world, um, if she's Canadian, she's mm. technically helping the government <laughs> because <laughs> it sounds weird, I know, but uh, earthworms are actually invasive in Canada. So they what? aren't... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, it goes back to the glaciers again. So the glacier was very, very heavy and it just ground up and put so much pressure on the earth's surface here in a vast majority of North America Hmm. that there technically is no native worms. So all the worms we have like European night crawlers are from Europe. So there's 19 different species all of which were brought over by European settlers. There's a few American um, worms, like lower North American worms, that have slowly worked their way up into our ecosystems. But in Ontario in particular, um, the University of Toronto has been doing lots of research trying to figure out how to stop earthworms from getting into the boreal forest because... um, Ontario's Invasive Species Organization, uh, branch of the government, it's basically Environmental Canada, Environment Canada. Um, they're trying to prevent earthworms getting into the boreal forest because what they do is they eat the leaf litter layer, it's what we call it in soil science, 
um, which is just a fancy meme for the debris on the forest floor. And with that, they usually consume uh, seeds and baby saplings and our ecosystems have been developed without the presence of earthworms. So they aren't able to regenerate and uh, come back as quickly. So there's like lots of different... Yeah. So it's so funny when I ever hear, um, like usually California, like California, there's native, there's earthworms are native to California. Okay. So we always hear Californian gardeners here in Canada, because that's kind of all we have to lean on. And they'll be like, oh, a healthy soil has lots of earthworm activity. Mm. And then here in Saskatoon, like, or in, just in Saskatchewan in general, I have people always say, well, I like got no worms. Like I dig and there's no worms in my soil. And it's like, yeah, no, you're not going to get any either because Saskatoon, um, like in Saskatchewan, earthworms are pretty rare. We don't really have them here. Yeah. I don't know why that is. But yeah, yeah, so that's just a fun fact. My, technique. <laughs> my mind is blown right now. I mean, <laughs> uh, okay, this is this is great. Burgundy, I hope you're listening to the podcast because there you go. There's your answer. Uh, till away and kill those invasive worms. But I mean, we all, <laughs> but they do, but they, they were brought over for a reason. They do provide a service in our gardens. Should, what can we be doing to replace the uh, what it is that they're actually giving to our gardens there is no way to replace them so okay. um <laughs> charles darwin and aristotle actually two obviously very prominent figures in history both um noted the importance of earthworms and um their role that they play in helping with food production mm. and so they're not replaceable. That's why the Europeans brought them over um, because they noticed that the gardens weren't doing as well here and they tracked it up to earthworms. So they are very difficult to replace. Um, the only way to replace the benefits or the, quite honestly, miraculous uh, features of earthworms hmm. is to start like a bare compost indoors or to um, obviously add compost to your garden. So all they're doing is changing organic material into um, smaller bits of organic material that can then be mineralized yeah. by microbes. So that addition helps. And so what I do here is I have my compost bin, which is very simply just a Rubbermaid container. And I let my earthworms do their work. And then when it comes to putting the Veracast in the garden, I usually will transplant um, with Veracast in the hole. Mm. And I will make sure that all the cocoons and the baby worms are taken out of the Veracast. So I'm not transferring any over. Um, the good news is, is if you do like a red wiggler Veracast uh, system, they generally don't survive very well in a vast majority of Canadian environments because right. it gets way too cold here. Um, some of the warmer areas in Ontario, they can survive through. And if you heavily mulch an area, they may or may not uh, survive. But th the moral of the story is with red wigglers, they don't necessarily spread out of that ecosystem. So it's not like they're mm. going to make it into the boreal forest per se. Um, it's just some of the other ones, like the deeper uh, species, the ones that are able to kind of get below the frost line that are a concern. 
Well, I don't even know what to do with myself now. Um, <laughs> we've just taken a completely left turn here. Um, shocker. Uh, okay, well let's let's move away. <laughs> let's move away from this because uh, I, having dug through uh, several different gardens, I know that I'm not getting rid of my worms anytime soon. There are just too many of them. Uh, <laughs> yes. So. Uh, but you know, the thing I was planning on building in my yard is a raised bed garden. And uh, the reason I would do that is a, for a couple of reasons. I'm going to th throw them at you and you can tell me if any of this sounds true or false to you. But the reason I'm making a raised bed is because it's going to raise the bed a little bit. And for my back, then I don't have to constantly be leaning over quite so far. But also by nature of it being raised, it's heating the soil, uh, which hopefully is going to help with plant growth. Yeah. So, um, with raised beds, I actually use raised beds too. Yeah. And so I do find that they get a little bit warmer. So you tend to be able to get into the garden a little bit sooner because the frost has cleared and, um, the soil is, uh, and warmer in nature. The other thing with raised beds is you can pick where you put them. Right. So you can put them in otherwise inconvenient locations, um, and select your son kind of thing. So that's all really beneficial. The one thing that I noticed with my raised beds that I've had issues with in the past um, and currently still struggle with is soil selection. So mine um, I did years ago and I selected a loam soil that was more on the sandy side and that was just because that was what our landscape companies here in the area could supply. Right. And I do find that they, it doesn't hold water very nicely. Raised beds right. tend to drain pretty quick. Hmm. Um, so that is less than ideal. If I was to redo my garden beds, what I would actually likely aim for is more of like a hugaculture setup just to help with water retention uh, more so because that was one of the mistakes that I wish I could go back on. Mm. Yeah. Um, could you explain what that might look like? Yeah. So for hoverculture, it's actually was developed in Germany and it was developed by um, a woman who had a disability. So she wasn't able to necessarily um, bend down and weed and all that sort of stuff. So she made a mound um, the first initial horticulture was a mound and it's essentially really old wood. So I'm talking wood that is uh, two plus years old. It's been cut down and been laying for a while. Um, twigs, leaves, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff in the center and then soil kind of packed around the edges. But in a raised bed setup, what that would look like is it would be trees, branches, um, scattered all through the bottom and then you would do like a layer of leaves, um, preferably leaf mulch. So leaves that have been aged for a year, um, mm. six months in um, a garbage bag, and then soil on top of that. And the water retention is much, much higher in those oh, systems. Yeah. And you don't have to water nearly as much. Currently, I find that I have to water quite often, um, despite mulching and uh, incorporating organic materials, you name it. It's just my organic material is not high enough in those systems. Um, and for me to get to 5%, the size of the beds and stuff, it would be huge amounts of money and uh, an incredible amount of time because you yeah. can't necessarily jump on top of a, a raised bed and rototill it in, you know, you're yeah. kind of SOL. You have to dig it out and, <laughs> and 
hand shovel it back in type thing, which I mean, depending on how motivated you are. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I have heard that described before though, actually. Uh, And it sounds, I mean, there's a little bit of uh, resource that's required up front, um, and not mm-hmm. just something that you can go to your local hardware store and get, unlike a uh, a raised bed. But it, it sounds amazing, though, and it sounds like um, it also sounds like something that maybe people living in a suburban area may not necessarily want to have in their yards. Uh, although to me, it sounds like an incredible thing, like because it is basically just looks like a mound until things start growing. Yeah, it's uh, not pretty. I agree with that. Yeah, it's like not pretty. It kind of reminds me of like the people who use cardboard as mulch. It's like, oh my goodness, your neighbors are going to kill you. But I mean, from a practicality standpoint um, and a yield standpoint, it's Mm. huge. I mean, it works good. Um, So yeah. There's that. (laughs) Well, that's kind of the most important thing. Uh, Just back to the raised bed, though, I wanted to, I I was just wondering if they could maybe have the opposite effect in the fall when the temperature drops. Um, If you're trying to hold on to your your plants or your growth or your yield a little bit longer, is the the soil temperature actually going to drop faster in the fall and are you going to lose your harvest quicker? Yeah, so that's going to depend on how you water the season um, through. So if you have really low water holding capacity in that soil, meaning you watered um, slightly, but the entire profile necessarily isn't saturated and you have spots that are waterless, um, you can have a a quicker cool down than something that's watered more often Mm -hmm. um, and has a fully saturated profile. So depending on the height too, if you have something really, really high, um, generally speaking, it's going to cool down a little faster than something that may be uh, closer to the ground. So those are all things to think about. Um, A hack for anyone that's, you know, about to encounter a frost, either in the fall or in the spring, water is your number one uh, savior. <laughs> okay. Water the garden before the frost hits and mm. you will be heavily surprised by what water can do. It has an incredible affinity for heat and holding on to heat. Oh, so okay. yeah, it's a reason why when you go to like the ocean and stuff, it always feels a little warmer mm-hmm. at night, despite the fact that the sun's not out. It's because of the water, the water's holding on to that heat. So, mm. um, I use water all the time. <laughs> Right. When I know it's about to get frosty outside, I'll just water it down. And actually in my greenhouse outdoors, um, when the time comes, I run a heater, but if I, I'm worried my heater won't keep up um, to maybe how cold it's about to get that night, mm-hmm. I will water the ground. I will water the walls. I will water the shelving, the plants, everything gets just drenched yeah. and soaked oh, wow. down. Okay. Yeah. And I find that it helps me get through the night. Um, just because, yeah, it does hold heat. So yeah, oh, that's a really great tip, actually. And I'm wondering because I think a lot of people would consider like a frost, although it will affect the root system, but actually it affects the actual seedling itself that might be growing out of the ground. Um, so I, I'm a little bit surprised to hear that watering the soil is actually going to help it in this root system and help it survive, even though the plant is still in the air uh, that can have frost affected. 
yeah even water the leaves like get the oh, yeah. leaves okay. wet and stuff too yeah and it will help with the help the leaves make it through the night as well um yeah. what do you have going on indoors right now are you uh are you getting <laughs> ready to get things out into the garden i know we've got a couple uh, weeks but yeah so i'm in zone three so my last frost date actually is until june 10th no. um so, yeah so i'm a little ways off but i do have my celery started um my peppers i do have some purple brussels sprouts started mm. um some herbs i have started as well and then it has some hydroponic stuff going as uh, um to top it all off i probably won't start my tomatoes until april ish um, and that sort of thing. And then I do have some flowers started too, only because flowers take their time, right? So Yeah, right. Um, are you doing anything to help them along? Is there additional heat or additional light that you're adding? Or do you just have them in a really clever spot in your home? <laughs> so I actually have my inside grow tents. So right. I don't necessarily need um, like bottom heat at all right. because the grow tents get kind of warm ambiently. Yeah. So it makes a big difference. Um, and if I had mine out of a grow tent, um, I just put them over top of my register, like in my house. <laughs> yeah. And right. it, it provides heat. So, and it's a nice gentle heat. I don't have to watch it. I don't have to have a thermometer in the soil to make sure I'm not baking anything because it is so subtle um, right. and gentle. So, yeah. Um, air movement. I, I've I've just learned that that uh, and this is something I've never considered before, but the actual moisture in your air, um, yes, can be a bit of a killer, and also the air movement can help with cell strength and structure of your seedling as it grows. Yes, so um, anyone who's super nerdy can look up VPD, vapor pressure hmm. deficit. <laughs> okay. Okay. I won't get into that too much here, but um, essentially, plants work kind of like a cycle or a straw. As water is taken up through the roots, it's released through the stomata of the leaves. And we have to keep that in flux because when the water's taken up, the nutrients is also taken up with it. Right. So if the stomata or the air around the stomata is too humid and there's nowhere else for that water to go because the air is fully saturated, what ends up happening is our plants stop taking up water. And so they stop taking up nutrients at the same time. Yeah. So it does affect our plants and how quickly they grow. So if you're noticing houseplants, even if you're noticing your plant is growing very slowly, it may be time to look at your ambient humidity mm. and uh, adjusting that according to your temperature in your house. So look up vapor pressure deficit. I have some videos on that. And I have some blog posts on that too. So anyone who wants to get nerdy on that, on that respect, but fans will help enormously yeah. um, with that air movement and ultimately help with nutrient uptake. Oddly enough, I know how bizarre that sounds, but it's yeah. all related. <laughs> yeah. It sounds so counterintuitive. I mean, does this also uh, affect outdoors as well? Like if, if you just live, I mean, I live on the East coast, it can be very humid out here. Um, is that going to affect plant growth outside of my garden? Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, the nice part about outdoors is that, um, when the humidity increases, generally speaking, the temperature goes with it. Hmm. Um, so when our temperature increases outdoors on the East coast, for example, and our humidity, it starts getting more muggy out. Yeah. The reason for that, um, relationship and why those usually go hand in hand is because of vapor pressure deficit. So warmer air holds more moisture 
And that's why that happens. So, I mean, outdoors is a bit nicer because mother nature kind of regulates that for us so that plants are able to still respire properly and uptake water and nutrients accordingly. But in a closed system like our homes, um, it's really difficult because you maybe run our house at 21 degrees Fahrenheit. And so we really can't afford to have um, ambient humidities of, you know, 60 or 70% because then there's no room in the air for the water to go and our plants do suffer from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So now flash forward ahead. We've all learned so much from this podcast and from your valuable information. And we have these wonderful seedlings that are growing and they're ready to be transplanted into our gardens. Um, There's a, there can be a process of hardening off before we take them outside and actually plant them. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that specifically, because I've seen some, some debate and I don't know among my friends or some debate as to how we actually should be doing that. Yeah. So the, the process of hardening off, the purpose of that is to strengthen those guard cells and to strengthen the cellulose or the cuticle layer of our plants and make them so that they're able to adjust to changes in ambient temperature, humidity, and air movement. So what it comes down to is changing the rate at which our plants respire, um, combined with thickening of the cuticle. So then Mm. we don't end up with sunburn. Sunburns is something that we commonly see if we just throw our plants in the garden in full sun, and maybe they were used to something with a little bit less sun. Um, Ultimately, all of which is going to reduce transplant shock, which will, um, transplant shock actually will cut into your what we like to call growing degree day units, so GDUs, Mm. and that will postpone your harvest. So the process of hardening off is really going to depend on the type of plant, um, how big the plant is or how small the plant is. Bigger plants should be hardened off for longer periods of time than smaller plants. Smaller plants are much easier to harden off and they're much easier to get in the garden. That's why I always advocate for starting your Uh, seeds maybe a little later than a little sooner Hmm. you will actually probably achieve your harvest sooner in the year than later in the year i did an experiment last year yeah i did an experiment last year with tomatoes where i started some really really early and i started some later and all both of which ended up having their harvest at the exact same time and i i chalk that up to the transplant shock or just the shock that comes from transplanting. Despite my best efforts to limit that, larger plants just don't transplant well and they take away from the growing degree day units you can accumulate because when your plant is stressed out, it doesn't accumulate growing degree day units. So um, I do chalk it up to that, but Mm -hmm. my hardening off process takes about a week or two. Now, given I'm in... A greenhouse setting and I start my hardening top process, you know, a month in advance. So I will leave my greenhouse doors open. Right. Even if it's 10 uh, degrees outside, greenhouse doors wide open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's allowing for wind flow. It's allowing for uh, cooler air to move in. And so all of that stuff tends to toughen up the plants. So my hardening off process is pretty quick. Now, if you are literally going from inside to outside, you are going to want to take that time. Um, And so I like starting off in a windy, uh, but 
not sunny area. So the more shade, the better, but something that's not necessarily heavily protected, Mm -hmm. allowing for airflow movement and that sort of stuff. Um, and I'll leave them there for a day or two. I'll bring them in at night and then I will move them into partial sun. So a little bit more sun during the day, Mm -hmm. a little less shelter, um, again, a day or two and then full sun. And then yeah. I bring them in for one night and then I leave them outdoors uh, permanently. And if you're going to get sunburn, you're going to know that your plants have gotten sunburn yeah. within about the first two or three days. And it's going to just be charred leaves type thing. Oh, so, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ashley, this is amazing. It's always a wonderful time talking to you about this. Uh, you make dirt so much fun. Um, no, but, uh, uh, not to sound too, uh, too glib, but it's, it's, it's great. I really appreciate you coming back and talking to us. I've learned so much. I can't wait to, to get things started in the garden. I actually feel energized about this as opposed to dreading it and feeling like I've left it too late again. Yes, absolutely. Good luck with your new, new property. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ashley. Okay. Bye-bye. Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast. Produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, PV Mart, the 100% Canadian-owned, down-to-earth retail chain. If you enjoyed this program, you should consider subscribing. Also, you can check us out at connectedtotheland.info, our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening.